All right, mediastinal tumors. So these will show up on your test for sure. We'll spend some time on this. Which of the following statements regarding thymic carcinoid is true? Over 75% of patients are female. Most are asymptomatic. Cushing syndrome is a common presentation. Carcinoid syndrome is a common presentation. Overall cure rate is high. Well, looks like we can't skip the lecture, right? <laughs> so it's Cushing's, strangely enough, with thymic carcinoid, and we'll go through lots and lots of tumors here. All right, uh, just an illustration reminding you that we have the anterosuperior mediastinum, a middle mediastinum, and a posterior mediastinum, and, and different tumors arise in each area. So anterior, the ones to remember here are thymomas, lymphomas, germ cell tumors, and other mesenchymal tumors. Middle tend to be the cystic tumors, but also lymphoma, and then posterior tend to be the neurogenic tumors. If you take all comers, uh, the top four, neurogenic, thymoma, lymphoma, germ cell neoplasms, right? So that's throughout the entire chest. Adults, so uh, the incidence, so about half of them are anteriorly located and 25% in the other two compartments. Half will be malignant especially if they're in the anterior component. Most of the middle and posterior tumors are benign in the adult population. A little bit different uh, pathology, children versus adults. Kids tend to have uh, lymphomas and blood cell tumors and um, germ cell tumors, whereas adults, uh, the thymic tumors start to be more prevalent. Rule of thumbs here, so most adults are asymptomatic, most kids are symptomatic, and that's because kids have a smaller space, and when a tumor starts to grow, it'll push on stuff that's nearby, especially infants. Anterosuperior masses tend to be more symptomatic. There's not as much room up here as there is back by your lung in the posterior compartment. Symptoms tend to be more common with malignant masses, and the anterosuperior masses are more likely malignant when you take all tumors together. Lots of syndromes associated with these tumors that are hormonally active, so just remember some of these you should, should be familiar with. Uh, I always like the one with Hodgkin's disease, getting pain after drinking alcohol. You'd think that'd tip you off, right? First couple of times you have a beer and it hurts, you might want to look into that, but who knows. All right, how do we diagnose this? So again, in our modern medical field, everybody gets a CT scan, and, and our radiologists are actually pretty good at, at reading these now. So many of these tumors, you can't have an accurate diagnosis, but certainly not 100%. So male patients should have AFP and beta-HCG levels. You're looking for metastatic uh, testicular cancers. Pheochromocytoma, remember the urine tests for the metabolites and isotope scanning. Asymptomatic patients that have a superior mediastinal tumor that lights up on your CT scan should have a, a radioactive iodine uh, scan to look for a thyroid uh, tumor. Needle biopsy, we say rarely provides adequate tissue. I mean, that's just if you're just poking around, but... FNA is pretty darn good, especially CT located, so almost everybody will get that unless the diagnosis is clear off non-invasive imaging. You want to avoid incisional biopsies if a patient might need radiotherapy and that's a port where it's going to go. And then if you think a lesion is resectable, it should be excised if that's the appropriate treatment. All right, so who do you proceed directly to resection if you see a mediastinal mass? So if it's characteristic of a teratoma, right? So they've got that heterogeneous stuff and they've got a tooth in there you know, you can make that diagnosis. They're older than 40, all right, so the adults, a lot of these will be thymomas, so that's, that's an indication to operate. 
there's no suspicion of lymphoma. So your radiologist says absolutely no, no chance of lymphoma. They've got normal AFP and beta HCG, or it's associated with myasthenia. So that again goes with thymoma. We'll talk about that. Most of the other cases will warrant some kind of biopsy first, and everybody's a lot more comfortable undergoing a chest operation if there's a tissue diagnosis ahead of time. So that's fine needle versus uh, mediastinotomy or, or some other approach. Let's start with thymoma. So that's about 20% of mediastinal masses in adults. There are three forms, epithelial, lymphocytic, or mixed. Uh, the epithelial cell type is characterized by being positive for cytokeratin, a microscopy, and negative for CEA. Just to remember the blood supply of the thymus, remember it goes up in, into the neck, and you've got thymic veins that drain up and uh, internal thoracic artery blood supply. Multiple syndromes associated with thymoma, the most common one you should know about is myasthenia, and we will talk about that, but also Cushing syndrome, carcinoid syndrome, all kinds of other things can be associated with this. All right, myasthenia, up to half of patients that have a thymoma will have myasthenia. On the flip side though, only about 15% of people with myasthenia will have an actual thymoma. The mechanism is an autoimmune reaction to the acetylcholine receptor. Males tend to have more rapid progression of disease, fewer remissions, and less responsive to treatment. Most patients, though, will have some clinical improvement after you do a thymectomy. So if you look at five years, maybe a quarter are totally resolved, and about half are improved, drug-free remission, maybe 50 to 60%. So they get better, most of them. So this is an illustration how that works. Again, you've got these antibodies that block the acetylcholine receptors, so that's why when you give them the medications that helps the acetylcholine not get broken down as much, that they, they get improvement in their symptoms. All right, half of thymomas are asymptomatic. They get discovered on an x-ray CT scan for something else. In the absence of specific syndromes like myasthenia, they will manifest with nonspecific symptoms or get big enough to compress something else nearby. Up to 40% are invasive. There is a spectrum of malignancy. There is, you know, you hear this benign thymoma. It's a spectrum, right? So we'll go through that. Plasmapheresis and, and better modern anesthesia really eliminated uh, myasthenia as a risk factor during surgery. Uh, we talked about the classification, and the survival tends to be better with the spindle cell and lymphocytic varieties. So uh, they all get a CT scan. That's usually on find it biopsy only when in doubt. Uh, the differential diagnosis, of course, in an adult is lymphoma, so depending on whether you get a needle or other open form of biopsy to get tissue if necessary. Okay, so this is a chest x-ray showing an anterior mass there. This is the Masaoka staging, right? So again, this is a spectrum. So stage one is macroscopically encapsulated and no capsular invasion. That's about 40%. And then your stage two means there's microscopic or macroscopic invasion into surrounding fat or pleura. Stage three means it gets to an organ, and stage four, it's uh, disseminated. So if you see on a CT scan an, uh, an adult patient with a well-subscribed mass, it's very likely to be a thymoma. Uh, 40 to 70% encapsulated. Loss of tissue planes on that CT scan suggests invasion, so you're going to look for nodules and think about, obviously, resection is your best chance, but do they need a biopsy before you head to surgery? And then look always for signs of myasthenia gravis. The treatment is removal of all anterior mediastinal tissue. So for an exam, it's typically median sternotomy, although there are less invasive approaches to this, such as transcervical thymectomy or robotic resection. You want to completely resect all invasive disease. So if it's attached to lung, pleural pericardium, even a nominate vein or SVC, you need to take it all out. Postoperative radiotherapy for stage 2A or higher and chemotherapy for stage 3 or higher. 
So here's the operative technique. Again, it's basically phrenic to phrenic and make sure you get those little draining veins that go to the innominate vein. And here's what it looks like on pathology. Well circumscribed mass on the, on the left side there and then this is classic uh, thymoma cells here. So uh, survival, like with any cancer, the more advanced, the worse the survival, as you would expect. Uh, a couple of the other con conditions that go with this. So myasthenia does not affect survival after resection of thymoma. Size, of course, the massive ones tend to be invasive. The extent, so if they're encapsulated, either adhered or not adhered, the survival is similar, but if they've invaded or metastasized, outcome's worse. And then the epithelial form has the worst outcome. All right, so just general uh, synopsis here. Stage one, recurrence very low. Survival excellent. Stage two, just depends if it's invasive. And then, of course, stage three, five-year survival, about 50%. All right, thymic carcinoids. So most of these patients are male. Most are symptomatic. The common presenting feature is Cushing syndrome, if they have a syndrome. Another 15% will have these perineoplastic syndromes. You do not see carcinoid syndrome in a thymic carcinoid. This is what carcinoids look like, these little, you know, like BBs, these uh, really dark little small cells. Uh, unfortunately, uh, many of these patients will have local recurrence or metastasis. Uh, the ones that are inactive tend to be large, right? They won't show up, and so they invade, and by the time they get symptoms, it's a huge tumor. Of course, uh, even if they have metastatic disease, it can kind of be prolonged, but the cure rate's very low, and survival's about three years. They don't have an associated endocrine, endocrine uh, if they have an endocrine feature, that's also a poor prognostic feature in addition to invasion. Uh, just a couple notes about lymphoma. Again, we don't tend to operate on these patients. Remember, there's Hodgkin's and non-Hodgkin's disease. It's anterior mediastinal uh, involvement. Um, it's uh, Hodgkin's has the subdivisions there you should be familiar with. Mediastinal involvement is most common with the nodular sclerosing and the lymphocyte predominant forms of Hodgkin's lymphoma. So this is what it looks like. This probably brings back memories of medical school. Remember these nodular forms of the lymphoma, treatments mop or chop. We really don't get involved unless we're obtaining tissue for some form uh, if a needle biopsy is equivocal. And you just try to get at it the easiest way you can with the least invasive way. So there's a, a lymphoma, okay, this big sort of heterogeneous mass here in the anterior metastinum. Okay, so here's another one, varied presentation here and, and lymphoma tissue there. All right, uh, germ cell tumors. So let's spend a little time on this. So this is up to 25% of anterior mediastinal masses tend to occur in children and younger adults. The mediastinum is the most common extragonadal site of germ cell tumors. There are three major varieties. There are teratomas. So you can have a mature or benign teratoma, also known as a dermoid cyst. That's shown on the right side here. There are immature forms. There are seminomas. And then there are embryonal cell tumors. And these are malignant teratomas and chorocarcinoma, yolk sac, embryonal, and teratocarcinomas. 60% uh, will be benign, you know, the teratomas in adults, 40% malignant. Of the malignant ones, they tend to be, occur more commonly in men, usually symptomatic either because they compress something, they're big, or they have elaboration of hormones. So of these malignant tumors, 40% are seminomas, 60% are non-seminomatous. So you're going to get in the male patients, alpha-fetoprotein and beta-HCG, over 90% of non-seminomas secrete one or both of these hormones. In men, testicular ultrasound to make sure it's not a metastatic tumor from the testes. Chest x-ray, of course, everybody gets CT scan, and then you're going to biopsy it to, to get uh, tissue for, to de designate your therapy. 
All right, so seminoma, uh, 40 to 50% of malignant germ, germ cell tumors. Most of these remain intrathoracic. If they do spread, it's to bone or lung. Most common symptoms are sort of vague chest pain, cough, weight loss, not feeling well. They're very radiosensitive, so you don't have to operate on them usually. The non-seminomas, 40% um, of these are kind of mixed. They're rarely radiosensitive. They're frequently metastatic, so the typical treatment is going to be chemotherapy. They can be associated with Klinefelter syndrome and some other conditions. So here's a little table to help you out here. So benign teratomas uh, and seminomas will not excrete any hormones. The others will of some variety. All right, so here's sort of a typical kind of seminoma, this young patient with this big, huge mediastinal tumor up front, okay? This is a teratoma. It's got some fat and lipoid deposits in it. This is what you might see more with a non-seminomous tumor, so it's kind of this heterogeneous thing, big thing, doesn't show up till it's kind of pushed everything around. So treatment depends on what it is. So benign teratomas, you can operate on them. Seminomas get radio radiotherapy, sometimes chemotherapy, and with high remission rates. Non-seminomous tumors get cisplatinum-based chemotherapy. You'll have complete response in 50 to 60 percent, partial in 30 to 35 percent. So we only operate on them if they normalize their markers after going to, through chemotherapy and have a residual mass. So here's your little algorithm to figure that out for non-seminomous tumors. So if the give them chemo and the markers are still up, not much to do. If you give them chemotherapy, they normalize and the thing shrinks away, nothing to do. But if they've got some mat residual mass of normal markers and, and uh, a viable tumor, you might consider uh, operating on those. Survival is excellent with seminoma, a little less so with non-seminomous tumors that um, respond to therapy. Endocrine tumors. So 20% of all mediastinal masses, so these are thyroid and parathyroid tumors. They can go and kind of go anywhere in the mediastinum, so just be aware of that. Thyroid goiters are the most common ones we see, and most of them are an extension of a cervical tumor. They tend to occur in older, uh, older adults. Uh, the I-131 scan will help you localize those. They can, when they're really big, deviate the trachea, but most of them you can get out through a cervical incision. Hyperparathyroidism, so you're going to operate on that patient by median sternotomy if they have persistent hyperparathyroidism and severe disease, and you've already taken out four normal glands in the neck. So those are the ones that you operate on looking for another focus. 80% of these will be in the anterior mediastinum near the thymus or in it. Let's move back to the middle mediastinum. So this is 20 to 25% of all masses. We see most of these are benign and cystic, so bronchogenic, esophageal, and pleuropericardial cysts. So the bronchogenic ones, about 5%, they tend to occur in the subcarinal region. Uh, typically on the right side, they can cause tracheobronchial or esophageal compression. They get larger, they can get infected if they communicate with the tracheobronchial tree. You usually have a low CT number, just a simple fluid cyst on your CT. You'll take them out, uh, even if they're asymptomatic and large, to avoid future complications. Esophageal cysts, about the same incidence. They arise from the primitive foregut. They're smooth muscle with an in, inner epithelial lining of some type of GI mucosa. They usually attach the esophagus and may be embedded in the muscular layer. They present more often in children and usually in the lower third of the esophagus. And then what's known as a neuroenteric cyst, these are associated with anomalies of the vertebral column that may actually connect to the meninges or directly communicate to the dural space. They're usually asymptomatic, and when they get big enough, they'll cause dysphagia. Uh, again, the workups chest CT, but also barium swallow and esophagoscopy 
don't biopsy them. You don't want to perforate it and then spread whatever's in there into somebody's dural space. The treatment's complete excision. If it's not infected, you can usually do it with vats, and you, even people that are pretty good with vats can do infected cysts or ones that are hemorrhagic. And then pleuropericardial cysts, so these are, these are pretty rare. Most of them occur at the right cardiophrenic angle. You just have to make the differential diagnosis between a hernia, so make sure it's a cyst and not a little loop of bowel that's gotten up in there. They're usually asymptomatic. You can aspirate these actually on CT, and if they don't recur, that's great. If they recur or cause symptoms, then it's, it's useful to operate on them. So this is a pericardial cyst. You can see the sort of double density right here on the chest x-ray. This one's actually on the left side over here. Okay, it just looks like a cyst there. So that's worth putting a needle in. Uh, this one recurred, so we did an operation. You can see this big cystic structure here and try to pull it out intact, but that's uh, pretty difficult to do. So just resect the whole thing. And then back to the posterior metastinum. So again, most of these are neurogenic in origin. So 95% of them are higher in adults are going to be benign. In kids, they're more often malignant, but fortunately, they're, they're pretty responsive in children. They're classified according to the cell of origin. They're mostly commonly found in the paravertebral sulcus. They arise from the ramus of an intercostal nerve or the sympathetic chain. So depending on what that is, right, so they come from the nerve sheath. These are the benign forms here and the malignant forms here, the autonomic ganglia, these ganglion neuromas or blastomas, uh, pheochromocytomas, things like that, right? The incidence, most of these will be neurolemomas because most of these we see in adults. The next is off uh, the ganglion neuromas and neuroblastomas. Okay, so again, on a chest x-ray, you're going to see this thing up here that shouldn't be there up in the sulcus. MRI is a great way to evaluate these. That's primary, your primary diagnostic text. This lights up pretty hot there on that, in that sulcus. So the neurolemomas, there are really two kinds. They're encapsulated. There's a type A and a type B in Tony's form. They have what's called a world appearance and a positive stain on S100 protein. Neurofibromas have a pseudocapsule. They stain more variably and are associated with von Recklinghausen's disease. So this is what it looks like. You've got the nerve running right through there, and then you've got this, this neural tumor that's developed around it. This is this sort of, quote, world appearance, if you believe that's what that looks like. That's characteristic. Uh, the neuroblastoma is uh, more common in children, so the most common location for this is actually the retroperitoneum, but 10 to 20% will occur in the mediastinum and have already metastasized. The classic finding is immature cells in what's called a rosette pattern, so that's a little key word for you. It's associated with various neoplastic syndromes, kind of this, these weird things with watery diarrhea, abdominal pain, opsoclonus, polymonoclonus. Fortunately, if it occurs in, in young children, they have an excellent prognosis, even if there's widespread disease. So how do we work up a neurogenic tumor? Since most are in adults or most asymptomatic, you find them incidentally on some other imaging. If they have symptoms, it's typically a neurogenic symptom, so you have to work up whether they have an intraspinal component that's, that's a problem here. MRI is the best way to assess extension, abnormalities of the spinal cord, how far it goes, whether it goes into the dura, and again, most of these are in the upper half of the mediastinum in the back. Treatment for these, if it's benign, local excision, thoracoscopy is appropriate, just as long as it's not uh, extending uh, into a place that's difficult to get to through a video-assisted thoracoscopic approach. Um, consider the open thoracotomy. If you've got interspinal extension, it might be malignant. It's a big tumor and all that kind of stuff. Recurrence is rare in a benign tumor. Uh, malignancy, of course, uh, local recurrence is common. 
All right, which of the following statements regarding germ cell tumors in the mediastinum is correct? Benign teratomas do not require resection. Bulkier invasive seminomatous tumors should undergo surgical resection. Platinum-based chemotherapy is rarely effective for non-seminomatous tumors. Surgery for non-seminomatous tumors reserved if you normalize markers but have a residual mass. Five-year survival for a mediastinal non-seminomatous tumor with normalization of markers after chemotherapy is 30 to 40%. This is a hard question. I wrote it. Hard to say. Oh, almost 100%. Good. Yeah. So the, the key there is, right, they've normalized the markers after chemo, but they've got a residual mass, so you want to make sure there's not residual active tumor in that. 